The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Uh, Washington's on the line, General. I'm getting out of here. Uh, one moment, wait. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, he's here now, sir. Someone would like to speak with you, Mr. White. Me? I ain't got no friends in Washington. I vote a Republican. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I wound the show up a couple of weeks ago predicting that in reference to all the protests and rioting going on, things would be getting a lot worse before they get better. Mainly because the U.S. election still had about five months to go and it's underway now. And you might recall that on that broadcast we featured the hypocrisy of the left and heard from Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, Salim Mansour, who postulated that what we are witnessing today is a Gotterdammerung, Gotterdammerung was the name given to the organized riots, violence, and wanton destruction perpetrated by Adolf Hitler on his own people when he realized that Germany was about to lose the Second World War. Salim posited that all the mayhem we're witnessing is the result of the Democratic Party's own Gotterdammerung, and having realized that they will likely lose the election in November and that their nemesis Donald Trump will return for another term in true leftist fashion. They have blamed the American people and are wreaking havoc upon their unworthy heads. Now the sheer irrationality and evil that we are seeing flourish around us, and that's what it is, has a single cause. A phenomenon repeatedly brought to our attention by philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand, who we really need to hear a lot more from. And that is, the hatred of the good for being the good. Ayn Rand made it very clear that what she meant by that was an actual hatred of something that the hater himself regards as the good, not merely a person who defines as good something that others might define as evil. And like many people, I had a tough time with that concept. Hating the good for being the good? Why would anyone in their right mind ever do such a thing? And I think the answer to that question will go a long way in helping us understand the political pandemic of our age. And we will begin our journey right after this very important reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. And as always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of our 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials. Now, I keep hearing it said that we live in unprecedented times. But if those repeating that phrase are referring to the chaos we're witnessing today, they would be in error. There's nothing unprecedented about today's current events other than the current date on the calendar. We are merely witnessing 
history repeating itself. Nothing unprecedented about it. Different time, different actors, same story. What was an unprecedented time, and this is important, was that brief period of recent history during which individual freedom and capitalism emerged and eventually reigned supreme. From about the Enlightenment to about the mid-60s, I would say. Now that was an unprecedented period of time in the history of man. Today, though, we are once again regressing towards a completely collectivist society, complete with the politics of communism, socialism, and fascism, which all sit together on the left of the political polarity. And this is not unprecedented. This is the way it was for thousands of years, though historically it was never described in these terms. And that's mainly because freedom and capitalism had yet to be discovered. Before capitalism, there was slavery, and it was considered quite normal and accepted by all cultures globally. If you're an enemy of slavery, you must be a friend of capitalism, but guess who's on which side of that issue? Now, of course, I realize that when some say unprecedented times, they are referring to the COVID-19 global lockdown and to the so-called new normal that everyone's expecting to replace the old normal with, Actually, I originally planned to devote this entire broadcast to the continuing COVID-19 state-sponsored pandemic, but that can wait since this whole Black Lives Matter crap has once again raised a false and distracting issue of racism. And let me state from the outset that we have always regarded Black Lives Matter. Ever since I first heard that term and we investigated it, Robert Vaughn and I did that a long time ago, and, and Antifa and all the political action groups and mainstream media that share their philosophies, they are all racist, fascist, nihilistic, terroristic, violent, anti-democratic, anti-freedom of speech, anti-capitalistic, and anti-freedom itself. Just like the Democratic Party and the other leftist organizations that fund all of this. They are all part of the left's death cult, which is no exaggeration, as you will hear. They are all claiming to be protesting against systemic racism when none of them is even capable of defining either word in that term. So just for the record, let's be sure we're all on the same page when it comes to understanding what racism actually is. Racism is the utilization of racial differences, actual or supposed, for political ends. So says my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia. But this political definition of racism should not be confused with prejudice or bias or preference. Those are personal issues, not systemic ones, and it's too bad we use the same word to describe both. But the personal side of racism, as defined by Funk and Wagnalls, is, quote, an irrational belief in or advocacy of the superiority of a given group, people, or nation, usually one's own, on the basis of racial differences having no scientific validity social action or government policy based upon such assumed differences, end quote. And that same dictionary defines systemic of or pertaining to system or a system, pertaining to or affecting the body as a whole. And that's an important thing to keep in the back of your mind. And of course, Ayn Rand offers us the moral dimension of racism. And she has always described it, and I've read this so many times before, as the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. And that's important. All racism emanates from the left. There's no such thing as racism on the right. Don't buy that for a minute. 
Racism claims that the content of a person's mind is inherited, that a person's convictions, values, and character are determined before he's born. And like every other form of collectivism, racism is a quest for the unearned. It is a quest for automatic knowledge, for an automatic evaluation of men's characters that bypasses the responsibility of exercising rational or moral judgment, and above all, a quest for an automatic self-esteem or pseudo-self-esteem, end quote. Or as we call it today, virtue signaling when one has no virtue. So the Black Lives Matter protests are not about George Floyd's murder and never were. What happened to Floyd was reprehensible, unjust, and immoral, but there is no evidence I've heard yet that would lead me to believe it was racially motivated. For Black Lives Matter, Floyd was just a political opportunity waiting to be seized. But the protests purportedly being held in his name are most definitely racially motivated. You know what color of skin matters to Black Lives Matter? Hint, it's not black. It's white. And what white skin represents, which is Western culture and Western values. That's the system that the protesters want to destroy. And they have nothing, whatever, to even be able to pretend that they have some kind of better system to replace it. And since the Black Lives Matter protesters don't really want anything except destruction, there's no point in arguing with them or trying to reason with them. Do not for a minute believe that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are in any way protesting for anything good. They are evil to the core. They hate the good for being the good. And if you need evidence of that, then make a point of listening very carefully and critically to the next two audio bites, each featuring some of the voices behind Black Lives Matter in their own words. On this side of our upcoming bumper, YouTuber Matt Christensen analyzes Yet another conversation between Rush Limbaugh and The Breakfast Club on the phantom of white privilege, while on the return side of our bumper, Glenn Beck laments the lack of more voices speaking out against all of the evil that Black Lives Matter stands for. Aside from the obvious destruction and violence, the most frustrating thing about the last week of riots is the incoherence, the lack of explanation for what exactly the grievance is and what exactly we can all do about it to address the issue constructively. And this incoherence, this inability or refusal to diagnose the problem and prescribe a solution in specific terms was perfectly demonstrated by one of the most unlikely meetings of media personalities I've seen in some time. I was driving around doing errands on Monday and Rush Limbaugh was on the radio and he mentioned he had just finished taping a segment with The Breakfast Club featuring among his two other co-hosts Charlemagne the God fresh off being told by Joe Biden that he's not black unless he votes Democrat. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Why do you still vote Democrat? I vote for whoever I think is the best candidate. Because the Democrat Party has been promising to fix your grievances for 50 years, and you have the same Mm -hmm. grievances, you have the same complaints, they haven't done a damn thing. I don't disagree with you, and I don't. I, that's why I'm not letting nobody politicize black pain and tell us that this is one person's fault just because they are trying to win an election in November. This is America's fault. All of America's fault is a statement so broad, there's no specific solution to be provided. If America as a whole is the problem, then the deconstruction of America is the only plausible response. 
And I don't want to forget about George Floyd. What, what happened to George Floyd sickened me. And I wanted to reach out and tell you all this. I, w- I want to make sure you have no doubt. And I'm not the only American who feels this way. And the rest of Rush's points and questioning were directed at understanding the Breakfast Club's perspective, not destroying it. And the reason I appreciated that approach is not just because it's kind, but because it was effective, argumentatively and persuasively. Rush didn't have to destroy the Breakfast Club. Their own inability to explain and defend their positions did that for him. It was first apparent on a few claims of fact. The Breakfast Club repeatedly claimed that George Floyd is not an isolated incident, that his case is part of a pattern of police targeting black people because of racism. This is a country, America, that denies you know black people justice and just plain decency, and then they act like we're just supposed to be happy to be here. R.I.P. to George Floyd, but this that was not an isolated right. incident. This is a regular occurrence Let me for ask black you. people in this country. George Floyd wasn't doing anything wrong. Breonna Taylor got killed in her house. She wasn't doing anything wrong. And so it's not that people haven't adapted to things. It's just that we get targeted and then there's no punishment when the police officers commit these crimes against us. Well, first of all, there is punishment for police crimes, specifically the cases you reference. Derek Chauvin is in jail right now. And the cops in the Breonna Taylor case are under investigation and charges remain possible. A consideration relevant when Charlemagne says what happened to George Floyd would never happen to a white man. White privilege is that what what happened to George Floyd would not have happened to a white man. If what happened to George Floyd had happened to a white man, we probably wouldn't even have heard about it. You definitely would have heard about it. You definitely would have been. You definitely (laughs) would have heard about it. You You wouldn't hear about it. And you know why? Because that cop would have been arrested. He would have been fired. He would have been charged with murder a long time before all of this. Well, we don't actually have to speculate about such cases hypothetically. There are such cases. To Rush's point, have you ever heard the name Tony Timpa? He was a white man arrested and killed by police in Dallas in 2016 in a way strikingly similar to George Floyd. Police pinned him by the shoulders, knees, and neck to the ground. He pleaded with officers screaming, you're going to kill me and begging for mercy. Help me! Get on the ground. No, you're going to kill me. Please let me go, please. And much like Floyd, there wasn't resistance from Tony Tempa. In fact, the police department reported no resistance in the state death report. Also much like Floyd, he was dead when an ambulance arrived. But in a detail even beyond Floyd, the cops were making fun of Tony while he died. He's asleep? He's asleep. He's snoring, that's what it was. Yeah, he's asleep. First day, you can't be late. We bought some new shoes for the first day of school. Come on. I made breakfast, scrambled eggs, favorite. What waffles? Waffles. Now, like me, you probably never heard that story. And Rush argues that's because media have no appetite to report stories about police brutality against white people. The Breakfast Club argues you didn't hear that story because those cops would be immediately charged and jailed. Except they weren't. Charges against the cops were dropped. And their mockery of Tony Tempa was characterized as just a, quote, strategy to wake him up. The trouble is, though, any and all counter evidence is worthless in the Breakfast Club's argument. You keep harping on white privilege and racism. Would you tell me how to end it? How, how, what, what can we do to end this so that you are not frustrated and angry and, and feeling like 
whatever you feel like. And you'll notice two things about their answers. First, they are so general and vague, there is no plausible response or action. It's just empty buzzwords. We have to dismantle systems and mechanisms that marginalize. That's just slightly advanced Joe Biden talk. You know, the thing. You had people electing the first African-American president in our history. That's he right. served for eight years. Why isn't there anything to show for it that makes you less angry than you were then. Doesn't matter who's in the White House if that person is not willing to dismantle the mechanism of white Come supremacy. Come on, guys. It, 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 elections don't matter, matter now? Is. We gotta stop acting like white supremacy isn't done by design. The whole function of systemic racism is to marginalize black people and it's very hard to get any damn near 80-year-old white man to change a system that's been working for him and his family for years. We need people that are willing to dismantle this, the mechanism of white supremacy. And Second, you'll notice the Breakfast Club actually flips the obligation onto Rush. Rush wants to understand what they view as the problem and what they view as the solution. And throughout the interview, they say it's Rush's job to describe the solution for them. How do we dismantle white supremacy as a whole moving forward? I don't, you'd have to define what it means to you. They say they can't even solve their problems until white people do it for them. I do think it is important for white people to acknowledge the hurt that they've inflicted on the African-American community and to be able to come forward and admit that we can't even move forward until that happens. And even though Rush has made a good faith effort to understand them, Charlemagne still rejects his invitation to continue the conversation. We're out of time here, but would you guys like to do this again where we pick it up right from this point and make a, maybe make not a focus if, not, on white supremacy? Not, not if we just going to dance the whole time. If, you, if, if, you, if you're going to have some honest conversation with us and stop telling us well, things now, like white privilege doesn't exist and you don't know what white supremacy is, if we could do that, yes. You say the problem can't be solved until white people understand. So this white person shows up and tries to understand and you mock him for not understanding. Do you see how this is unsolvable? But since asking for explanation is apparently yet another mechanism of white privilege and white supremacy to be dismantled, I'm left only to explain it myself. You won't. I want to play quick, quickly some audio that came from Seattle and Ami Horowitz talking to one of the leaders of this Black Lives Matter group. I want you to listen to what she said. Every single day that I show up here, I'm not here to peacefully protest. I'm here to disrupt until my demands are met. You cannot rebuild until you break it all the way down. Respond to the demands of the people or prepare to be met with any means necessary. By any means necessary. That's not just a slogan. No. No. No, it's not a slogan. It's not even a warning. I'm letting people know what comes next. A response to violence is not violence itself. I want you to listen to me really carefully. I want you to listen to these words. This nation is not evil. But believe me, it is about to be. If good men and women do not stand up, if they continue to do nothing, the freedom we all enjoy, that light will be snuffed out. 
and we will become more dark and terrible than any of the totalitarian states Karl Marx could have ever imagined. But mark my words, no matter how much you play along, the mob will come for you. They will take what you have, because when you actually read the words or listen to people like I just played for you, the people who lead these groups, they are for revolution, they are for chaos, they are for taking you, the system, and everything you've ever held dear down, rip it apart, destroy it, burn it, and never look back. Where's your voice? America, why are you silent? Look, I... I understand fear. I understand the fear of losing your job. I understand the fear of losing your friends, being an outcast. I've been there. I understand the fear of losing your life, being completely erased. But there is more to this gift of life and freedom that we have been granted here in this country. There's more to it than a job or popularity. I've lived this gift far more than my fair share. I'm okay. I'm okay. With losing it for me, if it means saving it for my grandchildren and my children. Because that's what's happening. And it's our turn to stand as Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln stood. And they were afraid. They were terrified. They were tired. Have you seen the look of Abraham Lincoln in a few short years? He didn't want to do any of that. But he knew someone had to do it. The same for Martin Luther King. He knew that he was born at that time for a reason, just as you are born at this time for a reason as well, in this country. And it wasn't to bow down. It wasn't to kneel down. It wasn't to grovel and kiss the feet of Marxist revolutionaries. They will not bring you a new peaceful world. They will bring you one of terror, oppression, death, for our children. Listen. If tomorrow, and time is of the essence, if tomorrow we began a, a massive national action not to do anything but personally teach our children the true history and then stand in our own communities, we win because we surround them. Americans versus Marxists, not left versus right, Americans versus Marxist revolutionaries. But let me just say this, even if we didn't have a chance of winning, where are those who would join a losing fight just because it's right? Let me tell you something. All of the forces on earth are arrayed against you. That is absolutely true. It was reported today that the leaders of Black Lives Matter have spent millions on travel and consulting. I was in the Tea Party. We didn't have a hundred bucks between us. 
They want violence and chaos, but if we fight fire with water, hate with love, chaos with peace, they will not know what to do. This is not about white versus black or rich versus poor or even left versus right. This is simply about right versus wrong. It is time, America, to come out of the shadows. It is time for your voice to be heard. Take a stand. Let us live up to our ideals. Let us restore truth, justice, and the American way. Let us live the Constitution. Let us all once again find these truths to be self-evident. You know, I have to admit that as horrible and emotionally upsetting hearing George Floyd cry, I can't breathe, it was far more so to hear Tony Tempa cry, you're going to kill me, and then to hear the police joke about his dying. Of course, none of this matters to Black Lives Matter. When the same system that killed Floyd also killed Tempa, they refused to see it. They willfully blind themselves. There are overwhelming statistics demonstrating that what is being called systemic racism, particularly in law enforcement, by Black Lives Matter, simply does not hold up to scrutiny. And while it's reassuring to know that the facts do not reflect the systemic racist claims of BLM, it is also a waste of time bringing it to their attention since the racism crap is just a distraction from their real goal of total destruction of the good for being the good. Now let's be clear, the issue of policing is entirely separate from all the other complaints. The kinds of police misbehavior that make the news make the news precisely because they are the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. You've heard me on this show several times complain about a quote-unquote police state, but the operative word in that term is state, not police. Our governments demand far too much from our police, who, as I pointed out recently, are a police force, and they're not here to educate us or to control us or to be our psychiatrists and counselors, for which some reason that's what everybody expects them to be. Defund the police? You know, how ironic that having a police force is one of the fundamental justifications of having a government in the first place. You have the police force, the armed forces, the force of law. When force is used to protect and defend life, liberty, and property, then it is the justifiable use of force. It is moral. But having police go around threatening citizens with fines and jail sentences for failing to social distance or sit in a circle or limit our freedom of association to some arbitrary number, all because of COVID-19, is every bit as unjust and unacceptable in a free society as would be the systemic racism being blamed on each and every one of us. Does Canada practice systemic racism? Well, yes, it does. Not its people, but the government does. Systemic racism takes the form of aboriginal reservations and separate laws for indigenous people. Systemic racism takes the form of collecting racial and ethnic data about citizens on the country's census form for the purpose of amelioration, nonetheless. Systemic racism takes the form of hiring quotas based on race. And we could talk about systemic sexism in the same way. And you know what's common to all of these systemic isms? 
The system is collectivism, which forces identity politics upon otherwise free individuals, which is why all forms of racism are a phenomenon of the left. And you know what else is common to these systems? They are all systemically prejudiced against the white male, who was always found to be on the bottom of any quota and who's always the group responsible for ameliorating, quote-unquote, the supposed inequalities and the disadvantages of other groups who are not white. So welcome to white privilege. Quote, it's hard to get any 80-year-old white man to change his system that has been working for him and his family for years, end quote, says the true racist on the Breakfast Club panel we just heard. And the system he refuses to name is individual freedom and capitalism. Oh, we won't talk if we're just going to dance the whole time. If you don't know what white supremacy is, we won't talk. Well, that's because he doesn't know what white supremacy is. Not only do they not know what they're for, they don't even know what they're against. But as irrational as that truly is, remember it doesn't matter to those actually pulling the strings. Irrational and fearful people make perfect pawns. Useful idiots, I believe, is the historical reference. And then there's Joe Biden who tells a black man that he isn't black unless he votes Democrat. I mean, if you ever needed proof and a demonstration that skin color is not the issue in this contrived protest, you couldn't find a better one than that. The same accusation has been made by Democrats and leftists against all black people who value individual freedom and who scorn the collective. Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, Candace Owens, and many other black people have been labeled white when we can all see with our own eyes that they are not. What's white about them is the color of their ideas. They are pro-freedom and pro-capitalism and pro-individualism. Consider the historical context of this. The Democrats have always been, always, the party of racists. Democrats fought to keep slavery during America's Civil War, as Dinesh D'Souza so eloquently has demonstrated when it comes to Republicans and Democrats, every slave owner in history was a Democrat. Zero exceptions. The Democrats supported Hitler going into World War II. And two weeks ago on the show, Salim Mansour spent a whole quarter of an hour just listing all of the racist sins of the Democratic Party. It was the Democratic Party that moved the concept of fascism from the left side of the political polarity to the right, and then had that falsehood put into the textbooks and schools of the nation. To this day, most people still think of fascism as a right-wing phenomenon when it is and always has been on the left, along with its other collectivist brethren. Quote, I'm not here to peacefully protest. I'm here to disrupt until my demands are met by any means necessary. A response to violence is not violence itself, end quote. Except she's not responding to violence. She's initiating violence, which again is what the left is all about. Make no mistake. Black Lives Matter is an avowedly Marxist and totalitarian group who has learned to use the virtues of their victims against them. Again, this is not unprecedented. This is history repeating. And then there's Glenn Beck's frustration and disappointment with quote-unquote good men and women not speaking out. He says it's caused by fear, but I think it's caused by much more than that, though it certainly plays a role. Because it's difficult to address irrationality with rationality. Those on the left are in no way interested in reasoning, negotiating, being persuaded or educated about any facts or realities. Facts don't matter, remember? How many times do we repeat that? There's nothing you could even say to them that would be persuasive. For them, persuasion and consent 
are not an option. They prefer to use force, since force is the only thing that can persuade rational people to accept anything on the left. There are no rational arguments to defend the ideologies of the left. Everything there is based on the initiation of the use of force, while the defensive use of force is outlawed or forbidden. Obviously, Beck realizes this, so he's aimed his comments to those silent Americans who won't speak out. And while I agree completely with his sentiment and his basic arguments, like so many on the right, he makes, he makes a tragic error in his closing appeal. He says it's not left versus right, it's Americans versus Marxist. It's simply about right versus wrong. Let us live up to our ideals and find these truths to be self-evident. Well, truth is never self-evident. It must be taught and demonstrated. And our public schools and education institutions are doing a terrible job at this, as we discussed on last week's show. And then there's the classic, this is not about left versus right, it's about Americans versus Marxists, and right versus wrong. Well, first, saying American versus Marxists incorrectly juxtaposes two categories that have nothing to do with one another. The Marxists among us are mostly American or Canadian in my case. Second, it is always about left and right, once they are properly defined. Left versus right is simply the political expression of the moral version. Wrong or evil versus right and good. Now I know that Glenn Beck is a great supporter of capitalism and does so on moral grounds, not economic. But the broader failure of conservatives to resist the left goes back a long way. And it's an issue we'll address right after our upcoming bumper. In reference to the recent Atlanta shooting of Rayshard Brooks by police officer Garrett Rolfe, Stephen Crowder raised a very uncomfortable question on his own YouTube posting of June 18th, one that I'm sure has crossed the minds of many people who are aware of what has been going on. Felony murder. Felony murder for officer, I think it's Garrett Rolfe, who shot Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. You have a DA who charged him with felony murder. Do you know what felony murder is, folks? Felony murder is when murder is tacked on to a crime already occurring in process. A felony is already taking place. It's already in process. Like, like armed robbery goes wrong, right? You're just planning on robbing a bank. You're not planning on shooting anybody. But, oh, and then you end up shooting some... That's felony murder. Please do tell me what felony that officer was committing before he fired his gun on somebody who had stolen his taser, beaten the crap out of him, and then, tr- then tried to shoot him with it. No, no, there is no felony. Here's the thing. This is a line in the sand because we are at a point in our country right now, you can only line up three ways, okay? You either believe, you believe that the officer should be put to death because that's the penalty, okay? Potentially uh, potentially for felony murder, in Georgia, so you either A, believe that Officer Rolf should be put to death, should be executed, B, believe that this is completely impermissible, or C, you're a coward, and you're just as bad as B. We are not at a point in this country where remaining neutral is a possibility. What really bothers me is Republicans and all of these Christians who uh, don't get mad. Like, there was never a time that, that Jesus threw over some tables at the temple. I think it's table tossing time. For crying out loud, you see these Christians, oh, it's just love. And you know what? Actually, this is true. I was planning on on starting uh, a day of prayer in DC where we kneel in prayer uh, and stand to pledge because no man should kneel to another man as Christians. We don't believe in kneeling. That's, That's 
deeply rooted in our history, both as Christians and Americans. But the prayer has changed. The prayer is no longer for unity. The prayer is for safety and swift uh, resolution. Sorry, oh, YouTube will take that wrong. Swift resolution right now. Because I don't think any person who's a human being with two brain cells to rub together wants this officer to be put to death. Then there'll be more riots. You don't get to put a cop on death row for firing a firearm at a drunken, serial, violent felon child abuser who beat their asses, stole their weapon, and used it against him. When people talked about there's going to be an armed revolution, I would say, no, no, but you know what? And let me be really clear, YouTube. I'm not telling people to go out there and shoot people in the streets. But for the first time in my life, I think a civil war is very possible. And let me explain to you why. You have six, now three, square blocks of the United States that have been taken over by violent extremists. Uh, by the way, leaders with no elections, uh, enforcement police with no accountability, no freedom of the press, no free speech allowed in Chaz. I've never thought that we were at a point in our country that we could have a civil war. Or that it would, of course, that it would be appropriate. And I'm not even saying that a civil war would be appropriate now, but I will say this. And when you have a place like Chaz, sorry, Chop now, a communist anti-American insurrection that was not elected, that is basically now taking over a portion of what is supposed to be free America against residents' will, who are silenced and intimidated into not speaking out, and they are protecting this zone with guns. Would it be an irrational response for American citizens to take back that portion of their city with guns when the police won't do anything? Not saying they should. I'm not advocating it. But what is equal to that? What is equal force? When a city is taken over by people and protected with guns, it has to be take it or take it back with guns. So let's say it's your neighborhood and you're trying to get home today to your house that you've paid for and you can't. There's a barricade with some pussy and a mask and some buddies with AR-15s who tell you that you need to present identification. And maybe in that neighborhood is your business and you've got to pay a fee, your little poll tax for Antifa Dimitude. Let's say it's your neighborhood. You've seen the results of Chaz? Go watch some videos. It looks like East Berlin. Not only businesses, but residences have been ransacked. What would you do? Does that make you an extremist? If it is your neighborhood that has been taken over without a vote against your will, and the government, your mayor and your governor, have made it clear that there is no cavalry coming over that hill. And for you to enter your own house, you have to go past a guy with an AR-15 who is demanding complete defunding of police. What would you do? I'm telling you. Just like I said, please stop the riots. Please stop. This is not going to be good. 
I don't even remember what I was going to say. I'm getting so angry about this. Sorry, listen, maybe this means something. Maybe it doesn't. I just, I, I had to get this off my chest. I don't know if anyone else, this is a very different feeling. From, this is different from any other instance in the history of this country for me. The left has tried to say silence is murder. Silence is murder. But I will tell you this right now. When a man is sentenced to death for doing his job, even if imperfectly, and when you have cities in the United States of America that have been overtaken and are being guarded by communists with guns, silence is cowardice. Silence is consent. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So what would you do if it was your home and neighborhood? That's a powerful question that no one wants to face. You know, if there is a coming civil war, then we can credit the Democratic Party with that event, just as we can the first American civil war when the Democrats fought to preserve slavery against the North and against Republicans. Now, to address Stephen Crowder's frustration with, quote, all these Republicans and Christians who don't get mad, end quote. And this also speaks to Glenn Beck's frustration that more Americans don't speak out. Again, by Ayn Rand, her comment on conservatives. Quote, Today's culture is dominated by the philosophy of irrationalism, altruism, collectivism, the base from which only statism can be derived. The states of any brand, communist, fascist, or welfare, are merely cashing in on it, while the conservatives are scurrying to ride on the enemy's premises and somehow achieve political freedom by stealth. It cannot be done. It is generally understood that those who support the conservatives expect them to uphold the system which has been camouflaged by the loose term of, quote-unquote, the American way of life. The moral treason of the conservative leaders lies in the fact that they are hiding behind that camouflage. They do not have the courage to admit that the American way of life is capitalism, that that is a politico-economic system born and established in the United States, the system which, in one brief century, achieved the level of freedom, of progress, of prosperity, of human happiness, unmatched in all the other systems and centuries combined, and that that is the system which they are now allowing to perish by silent default. If the conservatives do not stand for capitalism, they stand for and are nothing. They have no goal, no direction, no political principles, no social ideals, no intellectual values, no leadership to offer anyone. And man, those are the complaints I hear about conservatives ever since I got into politics back in the late 70s and early 80s. Yet capitalism is what the conservatives dare not advocate or defend. They are paralyzed by the profound conflict between capitalism and the moral code which dominates our culture, the morality of altruism. Capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They are philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. And what is the moral stature of those who are afraid to proclaim that they are the champions of freedom? What is the integrity of those who outdo their enemies in smearing, misrepresenting, spitting at, and apologizing for their own ideal? These are the conservatives, or most of their intellectual spokesmen, end quote. And that is an uncomfortable truth that I've been dealing with for over 40 years now in my own advocacy of freedom and capitalism. 
You know, Robert Vaughn and I often find ourselves continually amazed by how accurately Ayn Rand was able to identify the issues not only of her day, but of our day, even though she wrote everything she wrote way back in the mid-60s. There is not an issue you can cite today that Rand did not thoroughly analyze and place in a proper, objective, philosophical perspective. For those of you still not familiar with her work, I would recommend, on the nonfiction side, her books Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, The Virtue of Selfishness, An Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, and The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. On the fiction side, obviously Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. And of all those books, I do know that Donald Trump has read The Fountainhead since I heard him say so, but I can't speak for how many of the others he might have read. Now, I discovered the following great audio bite through YouTuber Dan Dick's June 16th Press for Truth video, which he in turn says was produced over a decade ago by a comedy group called The Whitest Kids You Know. And by the way, check out his website to find out what happened to him when he actually attempted to support a Black Lives Matter rally in Vancouver. These are not nice people, and they come in all colors. But I agree wholeheartedly with Dan that the skid is a perfect mirror image of what has been happening in Chaz, in the Chaz protest, now CHOP. Except for the absence of violence, it's a perfect, though humorous, vision of where Black Lives Matter would lead us. Thanks for this one, Dan. complete we have burned this capitalist system to the ground anarchy Anarchy! we will no longer be held down by the technology that has enslaved us Anarchy! anarchy no more laws no more rules we can live off the land as mankind was always meant to we can go see movies for free now anarchy Excuse me, hi. Barry Windsor, uh, just one quick thing. Uh, see, I used to work at the nuclear power plant up nearby the airport, and, you know, not to be a downer or anything, but uh, we're going to have to keep a pretty close eye on that thing. So, there's that. We don't need nuclear energy anymore! Anarchy! Anarchy! No, 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 I'm all for that. Hey, revolution and all. I mean, that's great. But uh, the thing is, is if we don't keep cool water running over the spent plutonium rods, there's going to be a meltdown, and that'll pretty much end life. Okay, well, how often do we have to do that? Oh, I'd say about three to four times a day over the next 25 years. What? Okay, all right, so we'll just work together on this and we'll take turns pouring water on the plutonium rod. No! No work! Free movies! Well, I mean, no one knows how to work the power plant, and he does. I, I mean, I'd just be afraid to screw something up with all the computers and all, and I'm sure there's a password or something. Well, yeah. the password is just welcome. Make him do it! Okay, all right. Well, since you have the most experience with this sort of thing, would you mind just taking one for the team and kind of staying on top of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, 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 I'll do it. I mean, I don't mind, but uh, it doesn't really seem fair. I mean, if I'm going to be spending all my time up at the reactor, then how am I going to scavenge and farm the land to provide food for my family? Okay, all right, I'm sure we can all agree that it's not a big deal to chip in, give him a little bit of our food in return for him saving our lives at the reactor plant. I guess. All right. Thank you, guys, thanks. That That's really big of you, but... 
The other thing is, is that it's not a one-man job, okay? I'm gonna need a team of people, all right? So, and I can ask my guys, and I'm sure they'll do it, but they're gonna need some food, too. Okay, so if you see his team, help him out and give him a little food, too. I think that's only fair. Well, how will we know who's on his team and who's not? I mean, anyone could just come up and say, hey, I work with Dick Nose up at the power plant. Give me a food. Hey. Okay, here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. We'll make some shirts for him and his team that say, I work at the nuclear power plant. Please give me some of your food. So if you see somebody wearing a shirt that says that, be a nice guy. Who's going to make the shirts? I don't know who's going to make the shirts. Rodney, will you make the shirts? Sorry, but I'm probably going to be at the movie theaters most of the time. Daryl, will you make the shirts? Fine. Okay. But I'm going to need some food, too. Okay, fine. Then just make yourself a shirt that says, I made this shirt, please give me some of your food, and then everyone will give you some food. Well, what's to stop anyone from just making a shirt that says, hey, I do something stupid, feed my ass for it! Okay, I will be a shirt inspector, and I'll go around, and I'll make sure everybody's shirts are legit. Is that okay? So, will you make me a shirt that says shirt inspector, please? That guy sounds like a cop! No, I'm not a cop, I'm just an inspector. He's a cop, let's get him! Get him! A new age is upon us! We won't let the man hijack our revolution! Forget everything that guy said! Yeah! Forget everything that guy said? Yeah! Okay, okay, well, uh, my name's Barry, and I used to work at a nuclear power plant up north. I don't support Black Lives Matter for many different reasons, and one of those reasons is the format and demonstration of their activism. The Black Lives Matter taking a knee has arrived in the UK, and UK sports as well, um, where it is conquering everywhere it goes. No one has a, a single objection to this, and I find it really, really insufferable. Because in my culture, in English culture, taking a knee has meaning. It's what a feudal vassal does to the Lord. But the idea of taking a knee has remained as a persistent one because it has meaning behind it. You're putting yourself on a lower level to the person to whom you are pledging your service. Taking a knee is antithetical to the idea of every man being his own sovereign. Bending the knee is totally antithetical to the idea of a society of equals. Bending the knee to an Englishman, or to any other Brit, really, is something that is culturally outside of their nature because of the history of the country and the regressive political systems that from the past we have left behind. Which is why when Dominic Raab went on Julia Hartley Brewer's breakfast radio show this morning, uh, he said... Just as after watching the football last night, um, would you take a knee if you were asked to? feels to me like a symbol of subjugation and subordination rather than one of liberation and emancipation. So would you or wouldn't you do it? Take the knee for two people, the Queen and, and the Mrs when uh, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> it's no wonder that Dominic Raab thinks that taking the knee feels like a symbol of subjugation and subordination because in English culture, it is. Any political movement that required me to kneel for it would be one that I would reject out of hand, on the face of it. No way am I kneeling for you. As Dominic Raab says, 
you know, you, you kneel for your wife when you ask her to marry her, which I didn't, incidentally. And you kneel for the Queen because it's to the Queen of the United Kingdom that you pledge allegiance, not Black Lives Matter. This wasn't exactly taken well by people like David Lammy. It is not just insulting to the Black Lives Matter movement, it is deeply embarrassing for Dominic Raab. Really, why is that deeply embarrassing? Why would I give a damn if Black Lives Matter has been insulted? The violent movement that has produced something like 20 or 30 deaths now caused millions in property damage and is currently tearing apart the fabric of our political system and getting people deplatformed left, right and centre for barely, for, for merely speaking out about it. Is this really the movement that I am supposed to support? Enforce the laws, enforce contracts, make sure that mob rule doesn't break out in the streets. That's all I want from a government. But it doesn't matter. The point is, I'm not going to be bullied by these people. I'm not going to be pressured into agreeing with something fundamentally at the very root of it I object to, which is racial collectivism. I don't agree that black lives matter more than other lives, and I don't agree that black people are the unique and most significant victims of Western society, and it's really annoying that conservatives won't come out and firmly and full-throatedly say, we do not believe in your worldview. We are not left-wingers. We reject the moral structure from which the left draws their activism. Conservatives everywhere have to say something along the following lines. We reject left-wing morality. I think that they are looking at this in a manner that is deeply unfair, that is in many ways racially supremacist, and in other ways driven by a hatred of white people. That was British YouTuber Carl Benjamin from his Akkad Daily posting of June 18th. And I cannot adequately express my contempt and disgust for all of our politicians who are bowing to the pressure of this violent terrorist group. Even the mayor of my own city, Ed Holder, who is a supposed conservative, has done so. It is simply demoralizing to see all of this irrationality around me each and every day, particularly as it is so supported by our mainstream media and politicians. So here's my warning and advice for the time being. Do not let your proper and righteous sympathy for those killed unjustly at the hands of police officers be used against you by getting you to support BLM or Antifa. These are the brown shirt movements of our era. History repeating itself. And I have to thank Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever for this following insight to a phenomenon that he brought to my attention a couple of days ago. He even had a name for it. Original Skin. <laughs> based, of course, on the idea of original sin, a concept which has many attributes shared with racism. Apparently, in his book Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler explained why race is among the best collectivist means of dividing people and controlling them, unlike religion or language, which are both subject to someone's ability to change. But if you use race, you are locked into a class you can't get out of when labeled so, or by skin color. There's no escape or avenue of action for you. Hence, you're guilty of the sin of original skin. Paul suggested I check out what Ayn Rand had to say on original sin. And sure enough, it describes perfectly what the moral base of groups like BLM and Antifa are all about. Quote, a sin without volition is a slap at morality and an insolent contradiction in terms. That which is outside the possibility of choice is outside the province of morality. 
If man is evil by birth, he has no will, no power to change it, and if he has no will, he can neither be good nor evil, because a robot is amoral. To hold as man sin, a fact not open to his choice, is a mockery of morality. To hold man's nature as his sin is a mockery of nature. To punish him for a crime committed before he was born is a mockery of justice. To hold him guilty in a matter where no innocence exists is a mockery of reason. To destroy morality, nature, justice, and reason by means of a single concept is a feat of evil hard to be matched. Do not hide behind the cowardly evasion that man is born with free will, but with a tendency to evil. If the tendency is of his choice, then he cannot possess it at birth. And if it is not of his choice, then his will is not free. Catch 22, right? What is the nature of the guilt behind original sin? In the Garden of Eden, Adam ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge. He acquired a mind and became a rational being. It was the knowledge of good and evil. He became a moral being. He was sentenced to earn his bread by his labor. He became a productive being. He was sentenced to experience desire. He acquired the capacity of sexual enjoyment. The evils for which they damn him are reason, morality, creativeness, joy, all the cardinal values of his existence. Man's fall, according to original sin, was that he gained the virtues required to live. These virtues, they charge, are his sin. His evil, they charge, is that he is man. His guilt, they charge, is that he lives." End quote. And then this final word again by Ayn Rand, and consider what you now know about BLM and Antifa. And this is about the hatred of the good for being the good. Quote, This hatred is not resentment against some prescribed view of the good with which one does not agree. It means a hatred of a person for possessing a value or virtue that one regards as desirable. And consider the full meaning of this attitude. They do not want to own your fortune. They want you to lose it. They do not want to succeed. They want you to fail. They do not want to live. They want you to die. They desire nothing. They hate existence and they keep running, each trying to learn that the object of his hatred is himself. They are the essence of evil. They who seek to fill the selfless zero of their soul. It is not your wealth thereafter. Theirs is a conspiracy against the mind, which means against life and against man." End quote. Sound familiar? As a standalone term, Black Lives Matter is undeniably racist. It intentionally separates black lives from the lives of every other racial grouping. Black Lives Matter is not a statement. It is a proper name given to a fascist, racist, and life-hating movement of the left. Those who have usurped the term have done so consciously, fraudulently, and manipulatively, knowing that most people will be in fear of resisting this racism because, in doing so, they will be labeled racist. And always remember this, the conflicts that are blamed on differences in the color of people's skin are never, and have never, never, ever been about the color of anyone's skin. They're always about the conflicting colors of their ideas and values, and the color that always threatens us is red, the symbolic color of communism, the left. It's all about the conflict between collectivism and individualism, freedom versus tyranny, and yes, left versus right. And it is in the right direction that we will be heading again next week when you are again invited to join us as we continue on that journey. And until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the
got bad clothes. Everything will be alright. And before we leave you tonight, we got a document that every American ought to see. This here is a list of 146 outstanding communists in the State Department. Each and every one of these 123 names has been thoroughly investigated by the FBI. We're going to take these 94 guys and throw them in jail where they belong. The whole 62 of them, believe me. You get a list with 38 names on it like that and you know how to work with it. We know how to handle these 17 commies. Not one of the five of them will get away. And when that guy shows up, he's in trouble, pal, I'll tell you that.